0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 31st of January, 2024, on Monocle Radio.
1: The Middle East continues to wonder where and when the US will strike its blow. Four glorious years of Brexit and the rise of the soft drink sommelier. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Sir William Patey will discuss the day's big stories and we'll find out what it's like to sit through a biopic of your own father. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Sir William Patey, former British ambassador to Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, now political consultant, and by Thierry Stiasny, the author and political journalist. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi there. Um, William, you have, you have, you have, you have is the correct tense here, yeah. as seems to be so very often the case, been gallivanting again this time in Spain.
2: Yes, San Sebastian, the Basque country, lovely part of the world. Uh, Twenty degrees plus, you know, absolutely stunning, uh, stunning uh, town. Uh, I learnt there that it uh, only is beautiful because of a contribution by the British. Apparently, oh, we do go on. Apparently, <laughs> we burnt the place down in 1813, <laughs> leaving uh, leaving scope for some uh, town planning, which they've they, which they've taken advantage of. It's a beautiful town, uh,
1: and and I'm sure the Basque people have ever since been extremely grateful to the British.
2: Well, they were quite grateful. To we were getting rid of the French who uh, they'd, they'd invited in, but didn't like them at the time. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't like the length of their stay.
1: Um, you, by almost coincidence, uh, Terry, are shortly off uh, somewhere, which I guess. Can also kind of thank the British Empire, sort <laughs> of. So,
0: I was about to say, I'm going to Miami. I know we burnt Washington down, didn't we? But I don't think we burnt Miami. But uh, sort of lots of Spanish speaking, you know, there's a slight link, tenuous mm. link
1: there. What, what, what do you, is there any particular reason why you're going there?
0: Uh, sunshine, nice buildings, Cuban sandwiches. I think that's about it. You, really? You're
1: not attracted by the, at all by the peculiar political microclimate of Florida?
0: I think that would be a, kind of, I'm hoping to sort of see that in passing. While I kind of go to the beach, but obviously, you know, keep my eyes open. Uh, And and, And, and not planning to go to Mar a Lago or any of the other.
1: And you don't see yourself participating in the great Florida traditions like wrestling with crocodiles in Waffle House car parks or going on drunk Segway chases down freeways?
0: Uh, I the kids might be quite in for that. They want to see alligators and they want to watch the Super Bowl. So I think that's, that's the plan.
1: Well, we will be starting in the Middle East, a region which is still waiting to see exactly what US President Joe Biden meant when he announced that he had decided on a response to the weekend's drone attack on an American base in Jordan, which killed three soldiers and injured dozens more. We have heard from one regional militant organisation which wishes to be excused America's retribution. The largely Iraq based, Iran backed, Kataib Hezbollah, who rather pompously announced that they would suspend operations against US targets possibly while furiously sandbagging their bunker. Meanwhile the commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Major General Hossein Salami, has said that while Iran is not seeking war with the United States, it is not afraid of it. Um... William, first of all, should Iran be afraid of it?
2: Well, they should because there's a problem of miscalculation. I mean, both the Americans and the Iranians have said they want to avoid a wider war. Mm. But the the sort of uh, attacks that are happening, the, the sort of uh, proxies, Iranian proxies who have now, now attacked and killed three Americans, um, the American response, if it's not properly calibrated, uh, could lead to an escalation. Uh, there are calls in Washington from uh, more uh, what I'd call f- uh, firebrand politicians that uh, they should attack Iran. I think there'd be a huge mistake. It'd be a big mistake to attack anything on Iran's mainland. But there are plenty other targets around uh, of the uh, the IRGC-backed militias, and uh, I would calculate that that's what the Americans are looking at to hit a series of targets that uh, of of militias who have been attacking American troops in their various uh, various locations.
1: Uh, Terry, it is a curious balance Biden has to walk, isn't it? Because realistically, he does have. to respond. It's not just that three Americans are dead. It is not to the credit of whoever launched that drone that only three Americans are dead. An attack like this could very easily uh, in future kill multiples of that. But again, he does not wish uh, to, well cause any further trouble uh, in the Middle East?
0: No, I think that's exactly it. He has to strike this balance between taking some action, and particularly if you've said we're going to have a very consequential response to this. You've got to do something. But, you know, as William was saying, you don't want to escalate it further than you are prepared to follow through and further than your allies are prepared for you to go, particularly if that means, you know, going across borders into Iran itself. And then you've got to sort of work out these targets uh, quite carefully to see, say that, you know, look, we're serious about this, but there's only so far we're going to go.
1: Uh, William, is it a reasonable supposition that there will have been an amount of back-channel communication between Washington and, and Tehran, possibly even to the degree of choreographing this somewhat? There was certainly, if you think back to the Americans' assassination of uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani a few years back, the... Uh, Iranian responses to that, inevitable though they were, seemed almost calibrated to cause as minimal damage as they possibly could while still allowing the Iranians to look like they'd done something.
2: Yes, I'd I'd be surprised if the Americans are talking directly to the Iranians to agree what would be an appropriate response to this. But they will be passing messages. Uh, The the Saudis are talking to the uh, uh, Iranians and the Qataris are talking to them and the Omanis certainly are. are. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if America is saying to uh, their allies, uh, look... We're going we're gonna to take uh, reprisals for this. We, we don't want a wider war. They'll be saying they'll be ready for one in the same mm. way as the Iranians are saying. They will be sending message to say that this needs to de-escalate. This, this can't just uh, tip for tat. That's why, that's why I'd be surprised if any of the retaliation involved attacks on Iran itself.
1: Hey, are there any opportunities or options here for de escalation, Terry? It's a, again, going back to that curious balance Biden now faces.
0: I mean, I think it's quite interesting you're talking about who the Saudis, for instance, are talking to. And we've got, you know, David Cameron out going out to Saudi Arabia literally at the moment, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking. So you have got people putting input uh, from both sides. And I think it was quite interesting how David Cameron, you know, possibly, I don't know, accidentally on purpose, said that he was, you know, prepared to think more about a Palestinian state when he was talking to the Arab ambassador. So there is obviously, you know, diplomatic discussions Going on as well, and I think you know people are very keenly aware of the problems. You know the problems of the Red Sea. You know the, this action. How how long can that can that carry on at the moment? So yeah, I think there are people are going to be looking for ways to try and not escalate it more than they absolutely have to.
2: I mean, I think David. I don't think that was an accident. I think David Cameron is, is signalling life after Gaza, and the way to de-escalate, of course, is to bring the carnage in Gaza to a halt uh, and to get some sort of ceasefire. Uh, there was some hope that there would be at least a six-week pause. Pause. The Qataris have been working hard on that uh, to free the hostages, uh, 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 and that would be the, that would be a, a start—a a six-week pause that could then be uh, negotiated into a, a into a, a more permanent ceasefire that would have to include Hamas stopping firing rockets, Hamas stopping fighting, and if it was to be long-lasting, there would have to be some. Uh, reinvigoration of a peace process. But I'm not sure uh, Netanyahu and his right-wing allies are ready for that. I mean, that that conference which attended by 11, uh, 11 government ministers, essentially saying, we're going to resettle Gaza and the Palestinians can, quote, voluntarily leave, unquote. It doesn't look like they're ready for much of, uh, much in the way of peace.
1: Uh, indeed not. But just, just finally, William, and to bring it back to Iran, if we draw out and look at the bigger picture, if you consider their actions and the actions of their proxies since October seventh. Is it clear to you that Iran has any coherent strategy, anything they're working towards here, or are they just, uh, you know, seizing the opportunity to sow further chaos because they can?
2: No, I think it's possible to discern a long-term strategy that was in play long before, uh, long before Gaza, which is to push the Americans out to uh, the, the, make the cost of an American presence high enough that the American Americans become disillusioned and move. They'd like American troops out of uh, out of Iraq. They're, certainly, their proxies in Iraq are agitating for that. They'd like them out of Syria. Uh, they, they, they'd and they'd like them out the out the region. Uh, now it's not. It's not, in the short term, likely that that's going to happen, that America's going to close their bases down in Qatar and elsewhere. But that's the Iranian strategy. With the Americans out, they become much more of a regional hegemon, mm. influence. So I think that's the Iranian strategy. Self-preservation, uh, strength and depth fight your battles outside the land of Iran uh, and, and, and increase your influence. I think that's where they're coming from.
1: Well, let us now consider Brexit and a brief pause for British listeners with any recollection of the last eight years or so to fling themselves into a nearby pond, there to drift, emitting mournful bubbles. It is four years today since the United Kingdom formally exited the European Union and haven't they flown by? In latest Sunlit Upland's news, concerned parties are warning that that new rules on food imports, which are imposed from today, will likely mean dramatically reduced yet more expensive options in supermarkets and delicatessens, while the price of resuscitating the government of Northern Ireland has been the establishment of a UK internal market like a common market between neighbouring countries. Interesting idea, let's see if it catches on. Terry, what has been your favourite Brexit benefit?
0: <laughs> oh, I've I've, people have been discussing this all day and I'm still yet to think of one. One that somebody else said was, you know, just constantly managing to annoy uh, Brexiters who keep trying to say that you know, oh, this has all been betrayed and ha- having to watch them turn around and go, oh yeah, well, we, we knew this was going to happen, it was all going to be fine. I mean, that's, you know, lent a certain level of, of amusement to it, but it's not none of it's good, really. Uh, w-
1: William, did travelling to Spain with a blue passport make it all worthwhile for you?
2: I've still got an EU one. Uh, uh, I've still got well, just, a Just uh, you wait till... I've got a blue one, but I don't use it. I've got Uh got two passports. I have have my old EU one. But every time I go to Europe... Uh, it it just makes me angry. A huge long queue for uh, uh, for for a plane that comes in from London, uh, and we wait half an hour and watch everybody else, all the Irish and everybody else, just breeze past. It just it just lends a constant annoyance. I, I was trying to think of a, a Brexit benefit. The only Brexit benefit I can think of is it's possibly going to lead to the. Implosion of the Conservative Party. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, you can tell you're an ex-ambassador, William. Um, Terry, on that thought, uh, and thinking of your specialty of British politics... As they anticipate what havoc these new rules may be about to wreak, and we don't know yet, it may be considerable, it may be minimal. But can the current government at least console themselves that the polls really can't get much worse?
0: Uh, no, they can't because they can still they can still get worse. And also, once people are reminded of this, I mean, there was a poll today which was saying that only um, you know thirteen percent of Brits viewed Brexit as a success. Seventy percent believe it's bad for the economy, and. I think, you know, every time you see a government minister having to say, well, you know, we all knew that there were going to be problems, but this is a price worth paying, as Andrew is, uh, Andrea Leadsom was saying this morning, for being a sovereign state, you know, not being able to get your fresh fruit and vegetables imported from Spain. It's it's all worth it, and we should enjoy our lovely turnips. She did not actually say a bit about the <coughs> turnips. Um, but, no, you know, because they will people will be reminded that this is the government, that, you know, five prime ministers and eight years ago promised us, uh, you know, all sorts of you know, the government didn't promise, the government said, Don't do it. Uh, people did it anyway um and a succession of ministers have said it's it's all going to be fine and and it isn't. Um, Is it
1: peculiar, therefore, William, that ahead of the election here, which must happen by January at the latest, that the, I mean, I kind of understand where Labour, the opposition party are coming from. They are firmly now in the mode of thinking all we have to do is make it to polling day without punching a baby and we're going to win this thing. But are you quite surprised that they're not making Brexit an issue? It It is a word they have been quite keen to avoid uttering.
2: I don't want. I think they don't want to fight the last election uh, mm. uh, on Brexit, and and I don't think there's any prospect. I I was a uh, I was a Remainer. I voted to stay. <laughs> you don't. Say. But I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily vote to go in now because the terms in which Britain would re-enter a, a European Union would be inferior, vastly inferior mm-hmm. to the terms we had before. Uh, so I, th- I don't think it's it's sensible to be talking about uh, going back. I mean I think. the, the Labour probably could talk more about having a, a a more constructive relationship with Europe. Talking about the possibilities of getting into a single market, uh, improving the trade terms we have, improving our reciprocal arrangements. We've, I mean, we've re-entered Erasmus. We've gone into the Horizon programme. Mm-hmm. There are lots of other things which are compatible with our sovereignty uh, that we can do with the EU that would. Um, uh, mitigate the impact of this sort of uh, hard Brexit that we had. So I think there's certainly more to be done. I don't think they want to fight the last election I wouldn't uh, I, I, on Brexit terms. They can fight it on the Conservatives' record which includes Brexit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Terry, if we look at the aspect of uh, Brexit which was one of the most vexatious not that anybody mentioned it during the actual Brexit campaign, Northern Ireland uh, we have developments there in the last couple of days. There is a deal of sorts has been done, which is slightly more to the liking uh, of the holdouts in the Democratic Unionist Party. but it does mean, or hopefully will mean, that government will be restored in Northern Ireland. This will be under a Sinn Féin First Minister for the first time. Um, what price do you think on the irony that one of the side effects of Brexit might actually be a reunited Ireland?
0: Well, I think that is that is the bigger picture of this. I mean, Tony Blair and John Major did mention it during the campaign and they said Ireland is going to be a big problem and people didn't take them seriously and they should have listened to them at the time. But it is, I mean, you know, I think the DUP probably know this better than anybody. Um, When you've got Sinn Féin yesterday saying that a United Ireland is within touching distance and then the Northern Ireland Secretary today having to say, oh, well, a United Ireland but not in my lifetime, Mm. which, you know, is not no. It's not, it might never happen. It's never ever going to happen. Um, Yeah, there are people, there are plenty of people living in Northern Ireland who think, great, I can get an Irish passport. I can travel to the EU. I can have some of those benefits and they are getting further and further away from... You know the history of the Troubles, and they might well think, yes, you know, may- maybe.
2: Uh, I will throw that question over to uh, William. Yeah, I, mean, um, I, think, I think that's quite right. Terry was on the point of, of saying uh, being part of a United uh, Ireland uh, would be a. Um, uh, would be a more attractive option for for many people it 's a less it 's a country less uh, less dominated by the catholic church it has it has actually a more liberal abortion laws than northern ireland uh, it 's got uh, uh, you know, th- there may be some attractions and i think at some appropriate moment uh, the uh, i think Sinn Féin will be pushing for a um, a, a referendum, which is this provision for in the uh, in the Good Friday Agreement, it may become a more attractive place. And I, I, do think that was one of the biggest lies after the NHS three hundred and fifty million a week that somehow uh, Brexit could go ahead and there would be no implications for Northern Ireland. That was that's probably those are the two biggest lies that were told during the campaign.
1: You're listening to the Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Sir William Patey. Now, when reading of further measures to suppress dissent. In Russia, it has reached the point where one almost has to be impressed. So completely has President Vladimir Putin suppressed contrary opinions, it is difficult to imagine what further strictures can be imposed. Russia's parliament has thought of something, however. The State Duma has passed a law which would enable the seizure of the assets of anybody, specifically in the words of House Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin, scoundrels and traitors convicted of making public statements which discredit the Russian armed forces now nearly two years into a three-day operation to conquer their neighbour. William, does this sound to you like the act of a completely confident country? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I'm a bit confident. It's certainly uh, the act of a of someone, uh, a, a dictator who knows new, no boundaries. Uh, I mean, the, it's already a criminal offence to mm. uh, to cast aspersions on the special military operation, otherwise known by everyone else as the invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, but actually, uh, taking their assets and thereby um, uh, po- impoverishing their families and and those around them seems a, it seems just a, a, another outrageous step.
1: I mean, does it suggest, Terry, concerns that there might, I mean, it does sound slightly fatuous to talk about what is going to happen in Russia in March as an election, but technically they're going to have an election. Um, There have been some protests by wives of soldiers who are participating in this nonsense in the country next door. Does this suggest concerns on Putin's part that there might, despite everything, be more of that kind of thing?
0: Well, I think he possibly is concerned, you know, that there are people sort of notionally at least trying to challenge him. There's been quite a few sort of literary figures and art figures and people like that who, you know, as you say, it's already a criminal offence to to go ahead and uh, criticise the government. But this is presumably just another disincentive to to try and do that. And it's also, it's it's very old school Russian, you know, it's making someone almost become a kind of a non-person that you're going to lose not only your freedom and your ability to, to speak out. Out, but also, you know punish your family effectively, but take away your assets, take away uh, anything else, you know, not just your name, not just your freedom, but just removing everything that you can.
1: It is a tendency of tyrannies, isn't it, William? It, it, it does, the momentum's always one way. It's it's never, they never sort of reach a point of, or rarely reach a point of suppressing dissent and thinking, actually, you know what? Let's let people speak a little bit. It's always trying to find something else to crush.
2: Well, it usually leads to a point where the people decide. Say they've had enough of it. Uh, yes, uh, it's very. I don't think there are many uh, examples in history where uh, dictators and tyrannies have said, "Oh, let's uh, let's loosen the reins a yeah, little bit." I have <laughs> enough power, <clears throat> and, you know. And, and, and Putin's seen dissent. I mean, he had the uh, he, had, he had the uh, mini coup from the Wagner group. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, so he may be worried that the, the richest, the oligarchs, the remaining oligarchs, that this might be uh, aimed at them. Uh, the 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 cost. For them has just gone up dramatically of, uh, of opposing any uh, of the uh, Ukrainian operation.
1: I mean, it it is a bit of a raw nerve in most countries, uh, Terry, the reputations of its military. Most countries like to think well of their people in uniform. But is Russia, given its history, perhaps uniquely touchy about it? It's certainly been a recurrent theme of Putin's rhetoric these last couple of years, the, the callbacks to the heroic Red Army of World War Two.
0: I think it's probably because he realises that people know the situation that the army is in. I mean, there must be so many families who, even if they're not told it through official means, you know, they know that people have died. They know that people have been sent off to fight with not enough weaponry, not enough uniform, you know, that people are being conscripted who normally would be far too old for this. Um, And so that people have direct first-hand experience of of what is going on. And so he's trying to, to counteract that and trying to prevent people from criticising it but he must know that in private that kind of criticism is still going on
2: and he'll be aware of the role the, the mothers and the wives mm. of soldiers in Afghanistan played well, in, so. in, in bringing and down Chechnya
1: the as well exactly
2: so they, he, he'll have seen the historical precedent of that and, if, uh, and he'll want to nip that in the bud
1: well, we are now entering the final hours of what, for some temporarily abstemious listeners, may have been a dry January. Should they wish to remain on the wagon, however, it seems that high-end restaurants are thinking long and hard about how they can better cater to the teetotal diner, slash gouge the sober nearly as flagrantly as they do the tippler. It says here that even some Michelin-starred hash houses are enjoining their sommeliers to suggest soft drink pairings with food. Food. one such restaurant indeed is offering what it grandly refers to as a flight of soft drinks for £42.50 which will currently buy you 23 two litre bottles of Coke Zero at Tesco and yes Terry I checked those figures um, are you enticed by tea rather than red wine with your beef?
0: Tea with beef sounds really <laughs> straight I, I guess the idea is that it's got tannin in it mm. and red wine has tannin tea has tannin but I think tea and beef just doesn't sound like it goes well I and mean, the, the one in the article which I really thought I really didn't fancy was the artichoke with pear and dill oil, which is a drink and not a starter or something on its own. And I thought, mmm, no, I just say water or, or have something else. But and there might be nice things, but I don't think tea or artichoke juice are, are very enticing.
1: William, would you, would you go coconut water with fish instead of a nice crisp white wine?
2: I'm afraid I'm a red man man with any Italian meal, and I can't conceive of an Italian meal without red wine. Uh, I think this is an, uh, an attempt to uh, to deal with a trend that we, mm. you, the, the trend of younger people more are, are drinking less and less. It's, uh, it's fortunate they've got people like me that you know, <laughs> are traditional and uh, and still uh, and still like a bottle of wine with my will. But I mean, this is this is a way of the markups. I mean, you, that's where restaurants have made their money on markups on wine, and uh, this will be attempt to maintain that sort of level of profitability.
1: Well indeed so and on that front Terry I, I am sympathetic to restaurateurs. really I am because I understand that the hours are long and the work is difficult and the customers are ungrateful and the margins are agonisingly thin um, but nevertheless they they have been having kind of a laugh for some years with the wine markups especially. Can they really pull it off with soft drinks do you think?
0: Um. I think if you make something that, that genuinely tastes good, I mean, I'm sure there, there can be, you know, nice fruit juices and things. That it doesn't have to be non-alcoholic wine or something. But you know, there's a growing market for people who aren't drinking temporarily or who don't drink permanently, and they, there's, you know, good reasons for for them to cater to that. But I, I think they've still got a, a way to go on their working on their flavors.
1: Because one of the problems they have here, it seems to me, William, is that a lot of what goes on with high-end dining to justify the prices that are charged beyond however good the food may be is that there is there is a mystique to it or so that they like to cultivate and there's more mystique in somebody surely blowing the dust off the yellowing label of some vintage bottle of plonk than there is somebody whisking something up out of pomegranates and deloial and artichokes or lapsang tea infused with rosemary and
2: pine. Yes, well I'm sure you're right. I mean this is not new. I spent 7 years in Saudi Arabia and this <laughs> uh, and and this happens. the the, the array of uh, non-alcoholic cocktails that are served up with meals. You go to the most stunning Italian restaurants, French restaurants in Saudi Arabia and you're offered all sorts of uh, uh, cocktails, uh, uh, not, but uh, at, at extraordinary prices as well. But I'm afraid I'm a sparkling water man when it comes to that. Well, I, I was
1: going to ask you, and you, you have answered the question there, uh, William, whether you both had a, a soft drink fallback in when not drinking alcoholic drinks. I was just in Australia, and one thing I would re-import back from the old country, well, to pretty much everywhere, is the thing where in recent years uh, lemon-lime and angostura bitters has become like an actual soft drink that you can get in bottles and cans uh, and it's very nice and goes well with most things if you're not actually drinking.
0: Ooh, um, an Austrian or German Apfelsaft gespritzt or an Apfelschorle which is like apple juice and fizzy water and it's actually just like the most nicest, most refreshing thing uh, if you're on a mountain and you can drink loads of it uh, and it's, it tastes good.
2: My fallback non-alcoholic drink which I had today after a round of golf, always have it after a <coughs> round of golf is ginger beer topped up with soda water with Angostura bitter. Now technically it's not non-alcoholic. The Angostura is a very important part of that but it's there's not much alcohol in it.
1: And just to, finally on this, though, William, to go back to where we came in, when, when you were going to those fancy restaurants in Riyadh and Jeddah and elsewhere in that famously dry nation, do you, do you actually get a sommelier at places like that when they bring you the fancy list of non-alcoholic plonk?
2: No, you don't. You don't uh. And there's no pairings. Would you like one of these 25 cocktails? Uh, no suggestion of pairings.
1: Sir William Patey and Terry Stiasny, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, the film Maestro, which chronicles the life and career of Leonard Bernstein, has been much acclaimed and has received Manifold Academy Award and BAFTA nominations. It might well be imagined, however, that one group of judges would be especially difficult to impress Leonard Bernstein's children. The film, TV and culture critic Ashanti Omkar spoke with Jamie Alex and Nina Bernstein for Monocle Radio.
3: He can be the first great American conductor. I wanted to ask each of you about when you watch this movie, because you've you've obviously seen it a few times, you've had that standing ovation moment, which you all conducted, which I thought was absolutely amazing. I'd love to hear what you felt when you were watching this movie, of the memory that you had from childhood that just came back to you from, from watching it? Because obviously it was your own childhood home that it was uh, shot in.
4: Quite surreal, is all I can say. It's as if, you know, that that could have happened exactly that way. It didn't happen exactly that way, but it might, have, it, it might as well have. He yeah. really nailed a lot of, for example, the scene where... He comes down, he's in his bathrobe, and he's he's playing the wedding march, and then we uh, spontaneously do a wedding scene. You know, that never happened in real life, but it could have, it could have, it it gets the tone right. And I loved the
5: scene that takes place in the actual lobby of the building we lived in when uh, Alexander and I were really little, before Nina was born. And little Jamie sails that paper airplane down the stairwell, and then her father catches it, and he opens it up, and it's just this little child's drawing, you know, I love you, daddy. And I love that scene because it evokes uh, those very early years for me, which, for which my memories are somewhat less sharp, obviously, because I was so young. But... It's the actual building and that actual stairwell that I knew so well uh, from back in the day. So that really gave me a charge to see that scene.
3: You must have all had little memories or even big memories of going to musical events with him or being part of his musical events. And I'd love to hear again from all three of you about what your favourite was from, from, from those times and whether that was depicted correctly in the movie too.
4: It didn't show us in his company going to a concert, but that happened all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the best was always being on tour with him abroad, because you were really immersed in every rehearsal and performance, and I was actually at Ely Cathedral for that performance of Mahler Second, And it was as electrifying as that it was. Gosh. And I was I was eleven, and new to the piece. But by the end, I knew every single note of it, and it's like a, um, it's like another limb for me. That piece.
3: I've got goosebumps hearing you say saying that. <laughs> now, how about you, Alex?
1: I, I think all of us have that a bunch of pieces that we. Became so familiar with because we were at the rehearsals and the recording sessions. Uh, Jamie and I got very involved with uh, Verdi Requiem, uh, and the, the singers came to our house for rehearsals. And we, you know, it was during I think Christmas vacation, so we got to be around it the whole time. We went to all the rehearsals, the recording sessions, and the performances, and we get all nervous before the soprano was going to sing it again. So that was always wonderful, and, and we know. So much music because of that.
5: Jamie, how about you? Well, it's true what Nina said that when we went on tour, that was the very most fun because you would get to know these pieces inside and out. And it's also true what Alexander said that Verdi Requiem was this incredible experience for us. I think that was. Uh, the, the first time I really understood that the better you knew a piece in advance, the more fun it was going to be to experience the performance. And, and that, you know, the, the more you know in advance, the more you get back. And it was a, a life lesson because from then on, we understood that it would always pay off. To get to know a piece of music as
4: well as you could, it was that—that was the big payoff. And the other thing about traveling with LB was that it was extra time with him. It was really quality time. And I—I I remember particularly aggravating though it was uh, walking through airports because he never had a sense of urgency when he was. Going from A to B, he just figured, well, they'll just hold the plane, duh. So he would walk, and he would talk, and he would stop, and he, he would he'd make, say, friends, and just... make friends, and make friends, and strike up conversations, <laughs> and you'd point out, you know, what that reminds me of, and then would come a long story, and then you'd push him along, push him along, but you know, and, the, and he was such a saunterer anyway that his his style of walking, was very leisurely. Yeah, no no urgency there.
3: In terms of the music that Bradley chose for the film, did you have any input in saying, you know, something like this would look great, or here's a memory I remember from when when I was there, or was this all artistically done in-house, so, so to speak?
5: Well, he uh, he did such a degree of immersion into our father's compositional repertoire, some of his choices were really deep cuts and we were astonished at at some of the choices that he made because they were so obscure, you know. But most of the time he just made his own decisions, but every now and then he would say, what do you think if I put this music under this scene? Or do you think maybe it should be this music under that scene? That did happen a couple of times, but ultimately, of course, it was his own decision.
1: A report there by Ashanti Omkar. Maestro is available to stream on Netflix globally. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Terry Stiasny and Sir William Patey. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.